Hello, and you're listening to Greg McKim on Home Talk on Tuesday, February 11th. Thanks for joining me. As mentioned earlier, it's sponsored by and provided by Greg McKim. (laughs) Eric smiling over there. I said my name three times already. The show is Home Talk. What's it about? Well, just about anything that has to do with owning a home, buying or selling a home, financing a home. Home insurance, maintenance, remodeling, new construction, rental properties, flipping, single-family homes, condos, and townhomes. It has to do with a home. I talk about it. How do I know enough about homes to talk about everything? I don't. I know enough to be dangerous, right, Eric? I wouldn't say dangerous. Dangerous. I'd say informative. Informative. Yes. Thank you. That's my <laughs> Dangerously support. informative. He's my supportive producer. He's <laughs> supposed to say those nice things about me. So, okay, a little background. In case you haven't heard the show before, I've been in the real estate industry in some fashion since the late 1970s, starting as a carpenter, which meant I swung a hammer, cut boards, poured concrete, that sort of thing. And then I got into the mortgage business in 1991, still in the mortgage business. I own a mortgage company for about 10 years. I'm a licensed loan originator as the VP of mortgage lending at Legacy Group Capital, a local mortgage broker right here in Bellevue, Washington. My loan originator number is 106202. I don't I don't have that memorized, so I have to look at it when I read it. And the company originator or uh, NMLS license number is 99045. Sorry to burden that with you, but it's the law. I got to give you those numbers. I'm also a licensed real estate broker with Rockwell Realty, another small firm in the area. I like working for boutique firms because I feel like I have more flexibility to help my clients. So why do I do this show? Well, I've been doing it a little over a year now with the intent of sharing with consumers just like you, people who are listening, the knowledge and experience that I have attained being in this industry for so long. I find that most consumers don't get very good information. There's not a lot of good information out there, and I'm not trying to denigrate everybody else, but I've been doing it for a long time, and even I can't find what I consider to be reliable information. So that's what the show is all about. Now, unfortunately, this is the second to last show I'm going to be airing. Next week is the last one. Look at that. You you, you had a, a sad face just now, Eric. Well, we we hate to see you go. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, it's that. been a good ride. Yeah. I think I'll come back in some other fashion and format, but lately it just hasn't it hasn't produced the kind of results that I'd like. I, you know, I do the show for two reasons. I do the show to be an altruistic guy. I really like sharing information and teaching people. That's, I, I love doing that. But I also did the show hoping to generate some business, and that just hasn't happened. So I'm out. I'm, I'm working away at other things, and it's hard for me to get here when I'm busy other other business and justify it. So in a perfect world, I keep doing this. But I'm going to come back in maybe a different format, Eric. I've talked about it with the other Eric. I don't know if he mentioned it to you. Yeah, no, I saw some inklings of that, and it sounds like you've got a very exciting show planned for us. So I do have I'm a- looking forward to uh, hearing that when you return. Yes, thank you. And I'll talk about that a little bit later on the show today. So um, today what I'd like to do is I'm going to do a recap of some of the shows I've done since January of 2019 and hit on some of the bullet points, some of the highlights. But before I do that, it's the Mortgage Minute so I'm going to give you an update on what interest rates are doing. Interest rate, I've been in this business, as I mentioned, since 1991. Right now, today, as I stand here in Bellevue, Washington, Western Hemisphere, 
this sector of the galaxy. These are the lowest interest rates I've ever seen. There might have been a time when they were almost or about this low back in September of 2013. So just to give you an idea. And you've been in the game for a long time, so that's saying something. Y- yeah, it's saying yeah. something. I, I had yeah. hair back when I started. <laughs> you still have hair. Yeah, I have a little bit. Yeah. And it was darker. Yeah. Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a sec. I don't see any gray in your hair. <laughs> There's a little. Oh, it's very, it's very, mar- it's very minimal. So today, if you were going, if you have, if you're qualified, you have the right credit scores. Da 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 da. But today, for a qualified borrower, you could get a rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage through we're, we broke with a number of lenders, but just one of the lenders I'm looking at right now at three and a quarter rate and not pay any closing costs. That's a APR of three and a quarter. By the way, APR is worthless. I'll talk about that a little bit later on today, but it's required by law for me to tell you what it tell you the APR. So what that means is that you wouldn't have to pay your title, appraisal, loan fees, escrow, all that stuff. And that's because the interest rate covers it, which I'll talk about again. I've talked about before. If you get around me ever, you'll hear me talk about it in the future. So that's really, really low. The same time last year, let me pull one. I got rate sheets here. I got one in front of me from uh, December of 18. And that same, to be able to do that same thing, your rate would have been four. That's a pretty big drop, three quarters. And if you go back to April of 19 to do the same thing, just flipping around here, 1.3, would have been 3.875. So that's substantial. If you're thinking about refinancing, excuse me, I got a sneeze. How do I, how do I mute this? <laughs> I've never had a sneeze on it. No worries. No worries. You catch me? We caught you. Oh, that's, that's good. He's, a, he's got reflexes like a cat. <laughs> Meow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so if you're thinking about refinancing right now or buying a house, you're not going to get rates much better than this. People say, well, why are they going down? Believe it or not, part of the rationale behind it is this novel coronavirus scare. Interesting. Yeah, because it's disrupting the world's economy. Hmm. Because I heard on the radio today that in some plant in China, only 10% of the workers showed up because they're so afraid of catching it. Yeah. Well, if you're not producing goods, things go Downhill. Right. Now, in China, of all places, I mean, in China, I thought they'd practically go and, you know, drag you to work. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, when China slows down, that slows down a a lot of the world because they manufacture so much stuff. Uh, But how does that connect to rates exactly? Okay. Let's go. We'll talk about rates, then we'll come back to the the whole coronavirus thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when the economy slows down, interest rates typically drop. It's not always the case. It's not lockstep, but it typically does happen. Why? Because the bonds that are used to securitize and fund loans are secure. When people are nervous, they buy bonds because they're secure. When bonds have high demand, the yield goes down, which means that the rates go down. Now, it's kind of backwards. Think about it this way. Let's say you want to buy a stock and a whole bunch of other people want to buy a stock. What happens to that stock typically? Eric, I'm asking you, not the, not the general listener. Okay. I'm not talking because they're not, they're not, I don't know of any of them that can answer right now. So they call it. Feel free to call in, by the way. Before I go any further, if you want to call in today, the number to reach me at the station is 425-373-5527. Again, 425-373-5527. Five five two seven, and if you want to reach me off air on my cell, that is two zero six two five zero 
6545. Again, 206 250 Or email me at Greg M, G R E G M, at legacyg.com, L E G A C Y G.com. So, and I have podcasts. If you ever want to look up, go just go to any podcast location. Eric, any place you get podcasts, look for Home Talk, and that'll right. be there forever. Those podcasts. Yeah. And lots of stuff there. Yeah. Just Home Talk with Greg McKim. Home Talk with Greg McKim. And that's the sixth yeah. time I've said my name today. <laughs> okay. So, back to what you questioned. The question is. Why do interest rates go down when the economy slows down? Right. Okay, I went back to my example. So when, when a lot of people want to buy a stock, what typically happens to the, the price of that stock? It goes up. Up in value. Yeah. Okay. So if a lot of people want to buy bonds, why do the rates go down? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Why wouldn't the demand for the bonds make the rates go up? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. It is a good question. It's very confusing, actually. Okay. So when a bond is actually a loan... A stock is an equity. So when somebody wants your money to borrow your money, and a lot of people want to borrow your money, you don't have to offer them quite as much of a rate, do you? So let's just say right now I had one person that wanted to borrow money from me because they, they think, I don't want that. I want to go invest it someplace. Right. Well, then I'm going to have to give them a reason to, to take my, my money, to borrow money from me. I have to raise the rate to attract them. But if they're, 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 if, they're, if they're running away from other types of investments, gold, silver, oil, stocks, then I can lower my rate because they, they want my money. I don't have to give them a high rate. Right. That makes it's, sense. It, it yeah. makes sense, but it's kind of backwards. It's, in, it's, it's, it's not intuitive, is it? Right. So that's why. They call it a flight to security. And usually if you see the stock market go down, rates will also go down. And if the stock market goes up, rates will go up. Why? Because the same exact inverse sort of thing, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, let's go back to the coronavirus. If anybody's been following the news on this, you know, I think on the and by the way, my uh, my stock in uh, medical masks has just gone through the roof. You so. actually have stock in medical no, masks? No, I'm just smart. kidding. <laughs> I'm just trying to relate it back to your stock analogy. But I hope uh, the smart blank was okay. I don't. The last part of that might <laughs> it's, it's all good. It's okay. Okay. So, um, you know, I was talking to my chiropractor. We order lunch or actually breakfast every month. We're good friends. By the way, if you need a good chiropractor, the best chiropractor, I'm going to do a plug for him, I've ever known in my life, Dr. Michael Dowling, Kirkland Family Chiropractic in Kirkland, Washington. It's unbelievable. The guy, he's just so amazing in every aspect. And he has this program where you can go in for unlimited visits for $84 a month. He calls it well care. He just takes care of you. That way you don't go acute. Okay, those for anybody out there has back problems. Michael Dowling, Kirkland Family Chiropractor. I've been seeing chiropractors off and on for 40 years. Can't beat him. Okay, that's a little plug for Mike. He doesn't give me anything for it. Maybe I'll make him buy me breakfast next time. All right, so here's the deal. He's, he, he and I already know. He says, you know, Greg, in the world, every year from regular everyday influenza, 40,000 people die. Everybody's freaking out because 1,000 people die. It's goofy. Yeah. And it's because that just it's one of these things the media kind of latches on to. Everybody panics about. But this does have the potential to become does like, it like a global any more than the actual flu? Thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think. know. Does I don't. I'm not a medical doctor. Are you? Are you like a disease? no? But just following the news, this this has the potential Maybe. to be a global pandemic. Whereas the flu is yes, always a global pandemic. Yes, Every yes. It's all. It's always a global. But uh, most people would, if they got the flu, would survive. Well, if anybody's out there right now that knows more about this than me, or even you, Eric, although you seem to know more than I do. Call in. Give your two cents on it. Maybe you're, you know, uh, uh, 
a flu doctor. <laughs> Whatever they call them, people who do, who study disease and so forth. So I guess if you were looking at it, it'd be how easily is it transmitted from one human to another, right? And then how lethal is it? Hmm. Percentages well, of yeah. people. Well, I don't know the answers. To I don't answers. know the percentages, but apparently it's fairly easy uh, to transmit. spread. Yeah, and apparently it's fairly lethal. Yeah, as a percentage so, of people who yeah. can contract it. But that would be the number you'd want to be concerned about, right? Right. Because so, flu is pretty easy to spread, too. I mean, let's face it. Almost everybody I know has had it in the last three months. Yes. <laughs> <It's> like, but <laughs> again, most of, most of the time, the flu doesn't kill people. Except for, of course, the whole 18, 19, 18, 19, 19 thing. Yes. Is, <laughs> yes. There are there, there are, are exceptions, exceptions and of course. And that could be, this could turn yes. into one. So anyways. And it could, yes. So, and we, I'm not making light of all this. It's just interesting how people panic. Right. Like, right, there was an NPR radio, uh, NPR radio news story this morning about how in certain areas of the United States in, you know, where they have, they call them Chinatowns, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's politically correct, but they. No, that's, I, I think that's still me, what yeah. people call it, Chinatown. Yeah. Sure. People aren't going to eat dinner. They have mm. restaurants are empty because they're afraid that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they get corona. Right. The odds are like zero, right? The right. odds are better that they're going to catch something at home sitting around with their kids who didn't go to school because now they're <laughs> lice. Whatever. Yeah. All right. So now um, I talked a little bit about interest rates, by the way. If you're looking to refinance or buy a house, talk to me. That's what I do. I've been doing it a long time. Hey, let me give you a story about something that I think is important. So I helped, I helped one of my clients make an offer on a home. Hmm week ago yesterday, okay? And we competed with four other offers. One of the other offers came in higher than ours, and we are the ones that are buying the house. What? How did I do that? There are little secrets to how do you do these things. It's how attractive... It doesn't involve the coronavirus, does it? <laughs> <laughs> we threatened to unleash it on the other... That's a funny one. I hope not. No, it wasn't. Okay, good. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that they're a good real estate broker, and I will conclude myself in that group without sounding too arrogant, but it's, it's how did I get this home when the other offer was higher than ours? I made the offer more than just price. Okay, so whether you work with me or not, this is what you should do if you're working with somebody else. That's why I'm on this show to educate. If you like me, great. If you don't work with somebody else, then I'll tell you what. Okay, so... If you're a buyer, put yourself in the seller's shoes. Okay, what's the seller want, Eric? Think about it. If you're selling a house, what's the number one thing you want? Money. Okay, what's the second number one thing you want? <laughs> I don't know. A quick sale, I guess. You want it to be sure it sells. Yeah. Certainty. Right. You don't want it three weeks from now changing. Or a month from now, it doesn't sell. Especially like in this case, this particular seller is buying another house. So certainty and price are the two things. So what I focused on was a good price with certainty. And our certainty was just absolutely ironclad. What was our certainty? Wave the inspection. Okay, now is there a risk involved with that? Yes, but it's a measurable risk. It's a risk that we were able to tolerate because we took a good look at the house. Mm-hmm. Second, wave their financing contingency. What do you mean? Well, my, my buyer was absolutely 100% qualified. There's no question that they're going to be able to qualify for this home. Zero. The only thing that would happen is if some, you know, lost his job. Okay, willing to take that risk because when you walk through life every day saying, I don't know if I want to buy groceries in case I lose my job tomorrow. Right. By the way, just in case the person does lose his job and can't then get a home, I would say, and I can't guarantee this, but I tell my buyer this, I can't imagine a seller not giving you your earnest money back if you could explain the circumstances because they're human beings. 
even though they don't have to. They can keep it in money, put it back in the market, but they're people. Mm-hmm. In fact, a while back, somebody I know, the buyer died before the home closed. The seller gave their earner's money back. Didn't have to. But they're human beings. Sure. Okay. So in things like that, okay, what else did we waive? Okay, now, the one thing, if you waive the financing, what about, what if the house doesn't appraise? Well, the house is listed for, four, by the way, this is a, a manufactured home in Bothell, for, listed for 400,000, 1,500 square feet. Not a lot of those around, but it's in perfect condition. A lot of real foundations, beautiful home. It's remodeled, has granite counters, beautiful home. So it's listed for 400. And we got it for 420. Somebody else offered higher than that. So what we said is, look, we know it might not appraise for 420 because there's nothing around to support that. So if the appraisal comes in at 410, now the seller has nothing. They're back to 410, right? So we said, we'll pay $10,000, whatever it appraises for, more. So you make it. And there's other things I did in there, by the way, so that my buyer can't back out no matter what. And my buyer's protected. And my buyer wanted to do every single one of these things. We went through all the pros and cons. So it's more than just price. It's more than just an offer. you got to think like the seller does, and that's what we did. So if you're working with a real estate broker, ask them what would the seller think about my offer. Or if you're the buyer, think what you'd think. If you've got five offers sitting in front of you, which one would you pick? Price and certainty. It wouldn't make, like I say, somebody else came along. By the way, I did this a couple years ago, too. 700,000 price range. Same sort of deal. Somebody else offered 30,000 more than we did. And the seller said, but we said we'd pay X over appraised value because we knew the prices were pushing what an appraiser could support. The seller said, well, the other guy didn't do that. So we're taking yours because the other person could have offered 10 million, ain't going to appraise for 10 million. Right. So their standard, standard. So unless they had the cash. Okay, here's the deal standard, standard so, yeah. contract, multiple listing contract, has a clause in it that says if the appraised value does not support the sales price, the buyer can renegotiate. So if you offer a house for a million dollars, it's only worth 700. Your offer is worthless because it's not going to appraise for a million. But if you offer 720 and say, I'll pay up to 20 grand more than it appraises for, which offer would you take? The 721. Especially right. if, you're, if you know anything about the market. This listing broker knew. So that's not going to... The other person... So that's, those, that's a little trick of the trade. But one of the things I do is I research the, what I think it's going to appraise for very, very closely so that I know that what we need to do. And I think it'll probably appraise for 410 to 420. And the seller's okay with that. Everybody's okay with that. And my buyer's okay with that. Why? Because he's been looking for six months, can't find a house he can afford in that area. So he's, he's what are you going to do? Keep renting? Doesn't want to. Makes sense? So there are little tricks of the trade. It's not just price. It's not. And by the way, people say, oh, I'll put together a nice letter. That's, that's one of those things that's been going around for a long time, Eric. <laughs> yeah, I always wonder about that, how much, like, how much influence that has yeah, on how people. How much influence that has, because I hear these stories of, you know, that, that they made the case that, it, that it's for their, their family and they've Everybody's got a dog. Everybody's making and, the same case. Yeah. Okay, again, as a seller, you don't know these people. You never met them. You got three offers or 10 or 15 offers in front of you. Right. You're going to pick the one that has the highest price, the most certainty, or the one that has a flowery letter? Hmm. Probably the money. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This put, it's possible that somebody with a flowery letter could do it. In fact, I did get an offer once because of a flowery letter we put together. It had a heart, I pulled it a heartstring. But if the offer hadn't had everything else in it, we wouldn't have got it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the letters went through it. I think it could potentially make a difference if you it, had two I don't think exact competing every, if offers, If everything were right? exactly yeah. the same, potentially, yes. 
but I, I would I would rather go with price and certainty of 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 of, of, of consummation than I would with a letter. Not saying you shouldn't do letters, but don't put a lot of stock in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what I'm going to do now, let's see, we talked about 23 minutes about, you know, virtually nothing. No, really. We talked about some good stuff. <laughs> well, the, the whole point of this show. It's talking about some set of stuff. Yeah, is, is the stuff that we talked I'm about. I'm just the, making the rates of it. and, you yeah, know, no, the rates are great. How to buy a house and, and all that's that. And that's yeah. a good, it's good to know how to put together an offer. Otherwise, my client wouldn't have got the house. Right. Yeah. And that just, you know, and he's very happy that he's getting the house. By the way, if people do want to work from you, this is a great time to give out that phone number. My home phone? Well, the number phone. that you want people to get, get a hold of you for. Oh, thank uh, you for that. Yeah. Yes, my cell phone to call me offline or off air, I should say, is 206-250-6545. I'm going to give you another story about what a great real estate broker How about is. an email address? Though? Oh, G, or that's actually, that's a different one. I got so many. Greg M, G-R-E-G-M, at LegacyG.com. That's my mortgage one. I won't give you my other ones. So Greg M at LegacyG.com. That one works. Yeah. And if you want to call in today and talk about anything, coronavirus, you name it, 425-373-5527. So I'm going to do another plug Greg story. Go for it. Okay. So this was at the peak of the, well, actually before the peak. You know, it was right before the peak of the market. So I listed a house, a condo actually, and I was over there doing something around the property, and I ran into a guy in the hallway that had his property for sale, but he hadn't put it in the multiple listing service because you don't have to. There's no rule you have to. And he had it listed, and he had it in contract with somebody for $50,000 $50,000 more, I think, than what I had mine on the market for. And I, I, and I, I just, I just, my jaw just fell to the floor because just nothing that I could think of could support that price. But he was in contract for that. Same floor plan, not as nice a condition. I already had a buyer interested. I raced back to my office and raised the listing price by, I think, $40,000 and got it. Just, you know, it's on my toes, did it, and the guy got it. And that was the peak. That was like May of 18, right at the peak. And whoever bought that property for that price right now is going, what was I thinking? They're probably about okay, right? But still, I'm just saying there's things that real estate brokers can do. Because people ask me, what's the point of having a real estate broker? There's an example. Using your head, bringing my client 40000 whatever it was, more dollars into his pocket because I worked, I, I, I thought on my feet and went and did something immediately. Of course, the person who had expressed an offer, an, an, an interest in the offer, was a little bit disappointed, but that's the way it was, and they bought it. Isn't that interesting? So that was a Greg plug. That's the seventh, seventh time I've said my name. I didn't say the whole name that time. Okay, And it's not a plug for me in particular. It's a plug for good real estate brokers because there are a lot of them out there, and you got to find one that thinks like that and does things like that and really works hard, and they're worth their weight in gold person just lists your house and sits on their hands and brings a little food platter or, you know, makes an offer and just hope it sticks. Man, you got to you got to really pull out all the stops on both sides. On both sides of it. Right. Think it through. All right. So I was going to do a recap of some of my shows that I've done over the last year. And we'll start with one that I did in Jan- the very well, the second show called How to Shop for a Home Loan. This is a podcast. I would say that's one of my better shows because it distills a four-hour seminar I used to do on the same topic. And it walks through 
why you shouldn't use an annual percentage rate and how to ask for a rate quote and the, there why there's it's no it's not true that you can do a no closing cost loan it's not true you've probably heard me beat that drum about a hundred times since I've been on this show Eric right no such thing they don't exist uh, okay so here's the three big things to know about shopping for a home loan one Every lender by law is required to quote you the annual percentage rate, APR. It's supposed to be a measurement that gives an equal weight. Wait, let me take a look. How It's supposed to be the, the best way to measure various or, or variables. Not true. Never use it for any reason. In fact, in my opinion, if it weren't the law and somebody came up with it, it would be illegal. It's that bad. And here are two primary reasons. There's a couple little ones why it's bad. One is that anytime somebody quotes you, by the way, there's a difference, Eric, between a note rate. That's the rate you actually are paying on the principal balance as part of your note, which is the contract to pay the loan back on a monthly basis. That's the note rate. Let's just say it's three and a half. Let's, okay, so three and a half. That's what you're actually paying. What's the APR? The APR is an attempt to include various upfront one-time costs as part of the rate over the term of the loan. Let's just say the average loan is 30 years long. Most loans are 30 years long. So if you had upfront costs of, say, $4,000, and you amortize those costs or stretched them over 30 years and add it to the rate, the rate would be slightly higher. That's the APR. That's what it means. Okay. The problem with it is that anytime you have a lower note rate, at some point, that extra upfront cost, Eric, you break even on, and so it makes it look like the APR on the lower rate is better than the other one, and it's not true. It's simply there was a break-even point. I'll give you an example. Let's take a rate of four, and let's pretend there's no loan fee. Forget about appraisal title, that crap. Just no loan fee, okay? And then you do a rate of three and a half, and the loan fee is four thousand bucks. You'd say, well, gee, the APR on the three and a half loan rate is lower. I'll take that one, wouldn't you? Maybe. What you didn't know is that the other lender who you got a quote from for the rate of four and an APR of four and versus the, the lender who has a three and a half and APR 3.6 would have given that same three and a half for a lower cost than the other one. This is where consumers get confused. So that, that, that when you have a lower rate, it almost always generates a lower APR just because the initial note rate is lower itself. It's a really a terrible, terrible tool because of that reason alone. And so when lenders quote and, sh and, and market their APRs, they know that consumers look at the APR and think, well, I'll go with the lower one. They don't know that in reality, the lenders are all offer the same rates anyway. What you want to look for when you're shopping loans is not rates. Don't pay attention to rates. Always shop fees because lender X has three and a half. So does lender Y. And so what you want to ask them for, what are your fees? Not your APR, not your rates. There's one other reason why it's not good. Because if you are, you can, there are certain fees in there that are third-party fees that are calculated in there that are estimates. And some people estimate high and low, but there's no requirement really that they be accurate. So somebody who estimates lower escrow fees, for instance, might be doing it out of, they have a really low escrow company and you might not use that escrow company. And there's a couple other reasons, but I can get into that with anybody that wants to argue with me. I've got a spreadsheet to prove to you why I would never use an APR. I've been doing this 28 years. I wouldn't even dream of it. It's a piece of junk. I feel that pretty strongly about it. Okay. <laughs> so the other challenge people have when they're shopping for loans is they ask the wrong question. 
And they always ask, what are your rates? Never ask that question. The answer is same as everybody else's. What? Oh, because we get them from the same places, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Ask me what my fees are. Don't ask me what my rates are. I don't look at, I don't look at lenders' rates. I, well, I, okay, lender has a rate sheet. I have it in front of me right here. It's full of rates, right? But when I'm comparing one of the lenders we broker to versus another one, I don't compare their rates. I look at a rate and compare their fees. And they, the fees bounce around all the time. Today, one lender might have a, a fee of a cost of a half percent for a three and a quarter rate. Another one might have a fee of zero. So I'm going to pick the one that has zero. But the rate's the rate's the rate. Again, if you have questions about this, want me to go into detail with you, I've saved people so much money by explaining this to them, by having them really understand it when they're shopping. And if you're my client, I give you the tools to shop. I don't have a problem with my clients shopping me. In fact, I encourage them to. Because then if they've shopped and done it, then they feel like they've made a good decision. And I'll give you the tools to do it. And there are specific questions and exactly how to ask them. I have a client right now that's buying a condo for a rental. And it's through a, a builder, and the builder has its own lending department. And if they use that lender, Eric, they use the builder's lender, the lender then the, the, the builder gives the client, my the buyer, $3,000 toward closing costs. And then he got a quote from Bank of America. who, okay, and, and I helped compare them. But even this client who I've worked with for off and on for 15 years, he was lost. But the, the information they gave him made no sense. So what I do is I go through and I clean it up. And I say, here's how we compare them. If you want me to do that for you, listener, call me. I'll help you do it. I don't care if you're not working with me because this is how I develop goodwill. I have clients. I get referrals. I'll help you make sense of it because as a consumer, it's not easy. But I do have tools to do it too, Eric. I'll tell you, here's exactly what you send them in the email. Here's the exact wording to send them in the email. And if it comes back any different, let me clean it up for you. And now you can make a comparison. One of the biggest problems that people have is that they'll ask for a rate quote and then somebody will quote them four and somebody will quote them three and a half and now you can't compare them anymore. Be like comparing a Fiesta to an Escalade. It makes no sense. Can't do it. It's apples and oranges. Or they'll get quotes on different days. And one day, it costs less for a rate than another day. So now it's not fair anymore, is it? Or it costs more. It's not fair to the person who has. Makes no sense, does it? So there's certain variables. By the way, Eric, when you're making a, a, a decision of any kind, a comparative decision, how many variables do you want? Well, the less, the better. Yeah, <laughs> correct. That's what I teach people how to do. Yeah. You want one variable, the fee. Every other variable gets taken away, so you all have to compare one thing. Otherwise, how can you compare multiple variables? You can't. By the way, the APR was designed to address that, but don't work. If it worked, it'd be heavenly. It don't work. <laughs> it's a mess. Okay, so that's one of the things on the How to Shop for a Home Loan show on one eight. Of 19, on 21919, I talked about condos and HOAs. People are really confused about what they are. There's all kinds of varieties and so forth of these. Property types, property styles. What does it mean to be part of an association? I got a great story right now. A friend of mine bought into, and I helped her buy it, a, into a 10-unit HOA. It's a neat little property. It's up in Kirkland but they don't have a property manager. They manage it themselves. And she has a background in real estate and is on a board of an HOA that she lived in previously, and she's really frustrated because they don't have regular meetings. They never have enough money in reserve, so the property continues to deteriorate. 
They need to do the work on the side and they don't have the money. And here's another great thing. One of the board members a while back replaced the windows in the unit without permission from the HOA. And it was a slop, a slipshod job. It needs to be fixed. But he's got the mar- property up on the market for sale. Now, this is why I'm telling you the story. Here's what's going to happen. Let's say you bought that property today. Okay? General. Right. Okay. And you would maybe have a home inspection. Mm-hmm. This is. I'm going to tell you what would happen in the, the, the 90% of the time in the real estate world. Your real estate agent would say, oh, well, don't worry about that stuff on the outside. The HOA is going to take care of it. Right? Because that's what happens. That's yeah, what people you would, say. You okay? would think that would be the yeah, case. Yeah, because that's what the HOA, okay. But, but technically, the HOA is not responsible for that outside stuff because the, le- the, the, the owner put the windows out without permission. Mm. Okay? So we got a problem here. One is that theoretically, the HOA could say, we're not fixing those, that, that siding because it's the responsibility of the owner. That's the owner's problem. On the, on, HOA has a problem too here, Eric, because you as the new owner could say, no one told me that. It says right here in the CCNRs, Covenants, Codes, and Restrictions, that you're responsible for it. Potential lawsuit right there. A lot yeah. of dissension, a lot of heartache. So I advised my friend. I said, what you need to do right now, you need to get something in place that makes sure that, that either that owner takes care of it before they move out or the new owner realizes it before they move in and takes responsibility for it. Now, that makes for a fun listing. Yeah. It makes it way more complicated. Why am I telling this to listeners? You better make sure if you're living in an HOA, if you're going in, when you go in with eyes wide open. These kind of things can become very, very messy. I got a client I helped buy a, a, a condo down in Federal Way in 15. We just sold it. Uh, we sell it. Middle of January. Same sort of thing came up. They got in there. She was on the board for a while. Then there were personality conflicts. The board refused to do certain repairs. Then they spent all the money on one repair. They should have saved for some more repairs. I'm telling you, if you're thinking about buying into an HOA, you need to really think it through. I've lived in them off and on now for, I mean, almost permanently since the late 80s. And I've got a really good handle on them because I've been board president, board secretary, you name it. I've been on these things. But, man, you got to know what you're doing. And most real estate brokers, and please don't take offense if you're one out there, they don't know jack on this stuff. They don't even know how to read budgets. They don't know how to, what to look for in the minutes. They just don't have a clue how this stuff works, especially when it gets into HOA versus a true condominium because there's a difference. Okay, that's enough. That, that show talks about that more. I don't want to go way off into it. Home buying tips on uh, 226.19. So on that one, a little bit back to what I just shared that story earlier about my client who's buying that home up in Bothell, you know, that we had a, people had higher offers than us, but we got it. So if you're buying a home, you got to think to yourself, what would the seller want from me? While you protect yourself, too, at the same time, right? So I won't go over that because I did a pretty good job of that a minute ago. Um, oh, selling a home. Okay. So you put a home on the market, and what do you want, Eric? What are the two things you want? What, when I'm selling the You're home? selling house. What are the two things you want? Well, I want cash and as, as much money as possible. And but, of course, the, the certainty. certainty. Yeah. Cash, okay. So- Let's say you put your house in the market in a really hot seller's market, and you know you're going to get five, ten offers, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, those people have made, most of those people who are out making offers have made offers on houses before, right? And buyers don't really like waiving things like financing and 
inspections. Yeah, I can tell you as a buyer, I certainly don't want to do it. Okay, didn't want to. So, do that. so if you're a buyer and you don't want to waive your inspection, sometimes what you do is you'll get what's called a pre-inspection. Okay, so this is off. This is real. This happens a lot where four or five people who are getting ready to make an offer will spend the money, the four hundred fifty bucks, to get an inspection done on a house they don't even ha- aren't even in contract on. Mm-hmm. Okay, and after they've done two or three of those, they don't want to do it anymore. You got thousand fifteen hundred bucks out of pocket. They say, I'm not doing this anymore. Okay. Yeah. So what you do, when you're a seller, you want to have as many people as possible making offers in your house. You want to open up the buying pool. So what you do is you always get your own inspection because then people can waive it and not have to worry about it because you give them a copy. So now not only do people waive it, which makes them feel more comfortable, because then you don't have to worry about them renegotiating. See, when you have an inspection, when a buyer has an inspection, when they get the results back, they can renegotiate the contract for any reason they want to on that inspection or walk out of the deal. You don't want that as a seller. You don't want people to be able to walk away or, 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 or renegotiate. You want them to be in. So you get your own inspection. So it, it, it lets people waive theirs, and it also brings in those buyers who are tired of paying for pre-inspections. That's one example. The other thing is you make sure that house is pristine, perfectly clean. I had a client a while back. I've told this story in the air before. I sold them a, their house back about two years ago in Fairwood, which is down in Renton. And the exact same home, same, like one block away, built in the same year, everything. So I, my client, we sold their house for $20,000 more a few weeks later. Why? Because I said, put in new carpet, paint that, fix that, get an inspection. This house, you walked into it as a buyer, you want to move in today. The other house just looked so-so. But the money they put into it, they got back. When I say twenty thousand, they got twenty thousand after the costs more. Because think about now, as a seller, you want to think about a buyer. The buyer wants to come in and have at least amount of risk and at least amount of time and energy. Plus, most buyers buy slightly above what they can really afford, because it's just you going out, you're looking at houses, you can you, you, the stuff you really want is just slightly out of your reach. I got a client looking for a four hundred thousand dollar home. Everyone they likes four fifty. I got a client looking for a seven hundred dollar home. Everyone they likes eight hundred <laughs> million dollar. Everyone they wants one point two. It's just human nature. So when they come in to buy your home, they're usually stretching themselves a little bit. Down payment, closing costs. They don't have another ten or five grand laying around to put in carpet. They don't got the money. Plus, they don't want to hassle with it. You make that house look turnkey, and you make it no barriers to get in. Makes sense. Yeah. If, yeah. This continues on. If you're selling a condo, HOA, when a, when you sell a condo, a true condo, which is under the Condominium Act of Washington State, you have to provide the buyer with a set of documents and a called a resale certificate. And the resale certificate discloses things like how many units are in the complex, how many are rentals versus owner occupied, what kind of what are their finances, is there any litigation? It just because it, you're buying into not just a home, Eric, you're buying into a a community that has financial obligations and all kinds of things, right? And it's managed. Okay, so what most sellers do is they, after they get into contract with a buyer, they provide that resale certificate after they're in contract because the standard real estate addendum called the Form 22D, paragraph 8 on page 2, gives the, the buyer the right to receive it within 10 days and then five days review it. I don't want my buyer being able to go, I don't like it. Because you get it to them within 10 business days, they have five calendar days to review it, and they can back out of the contract for any reason. Unacceptable resale certificate. They don't have to tell you why. No. 
So what I do on my HOAs, that that's signed in advance and reviewed. I have it on the on the multiple listing. It, I say you review this, you sign off on it before you even make an offer. Done deal. No way you're backing out, and it protects the buyer too. It's better actually because then you know what if you're, you want to buy this place before you make an offer. That's a seller tip for you. Get an inspection, make your house clean, and if you're an HOA, get that resale certificate up and out and out. Even some people say, well, I might have to get a if I do it today because it costs money, like four hundred bucks or whatever to get a resale certificate from your property manager, and then they expire. Oh, I might have to pay another 100 bucks if, if I don't get my property. Co- so what? <laughs> you want to have that, or you have to worry about somebody backing out of your contract. Okay. All right. So now we, got, uh, we had seller home. We talked about roofs. We talked about estate planning with my cousin. We talked about those building products. Remember that that fireproof siding stuff? Yeah. If, if you're a builder or if you think about buying a home or building a home, I should say, go to April 2nd and listen to the broadcast that I did with a company here, a couple of people representing MGO Systems. In fact, go online, MGO Systems, and watch the demo where they have this little shed burning and how the plywood, the whole thing just goes up in minutes, and the MGO siding stands there because it's a concrete sort of a board. It's actually... It's, it's actually better than Hardy Plank in a lot of respects. Uh, we talked about rehabilitation loans on April. And then on, on May, I talked about all the closing costs that go into a loan. Like, what's a title report? Why do you got to buy it? What, what are your options for an appraisal? What's a credit report? What's, what's escrow? What's a recording fee? What's a loan fee? What's a tax service fee? Everybody went through that whole thing. Bored, bore you to tears. But if you're interested, I go into it. Uh, let's see, did a little bit of the same on in June, which is called the loan buying process, where I covered some of the steps that I would go through, which I touched on just a while ago about how to shop for a loan. And I talk a little bit about loans in a number of cases here. Uh, let's see, oh, in, in um, November on 11-12, I had the CEO of Legacy Group Capital, Scott we rock up on air. We talked about some of the things we do at Le- Legacy Group Capital, which is we, we really, our primary focus there is we finance construction loans, bridge loans, rehabs, and constru- ground up for contractors who cannot get financing through traditional sources. And we partner with the builders there. We don't just loan to them. We have all kinds of ways to help them succeed. Just give you a couple of brief examples. Uh, we, th- we do the books for 30 of our builders. Well, why? Well, first of all, they don't want to do them. We do it for a really reasonable price, lower than they can get for most bookkeeping services. And if they're doing business with us on a regular basis, Eric, they don't have to apply for a loan every time. We already know exactly where they stand. So that speed is of the essence. When you're a builder developer and you're right now, you're looking this area for buy a piece of property. If you can jump on it before your competitor gives you a really gives you a head start. And that's we're geared towards that. How can we help our builders get properties and be profitable? Another thing we'll do is we can have, if you're out there right now and you're kicking tires, so to speak, kicking walls, thinking about buying a property and flipping it or doing something with it, bring it to us and we'll take a look at it and tell you where you think it makes sense. And some people who are doing this, just getting started at, they really don't know how to measure it. They say, well, how to, well, for instance, I don't know if I can get permits for this. We got a person in our office who worked for the city of Seattle permitting department, I don't know how many years, he'll give you, he'll tell you everything that needs to be done on that property, the permits, what it'll cost, and whether it can be done within hours, usually a day. It's amazing. Soup to nuts, man. 
And we do all kinds of different loans. We have different loan programs where we can lend uh, bridge loans, short-term loans. Um, you know, we can we can do some sort of equity sharing with you where we, we, we come in as as basically as partners because we have a, a development division, acquisition department. Okay, I've talked about home inspections uh, a while back, and we talked we've talked about interest rates a couple times. So, look me up, go to podcasts, browse through them. Home talk with Greg McKim. So, what am I thinking about doing in the future, Eric? Tell me more. <laughs> well. Um, in October, first part of October of last year, I went through a three-day course called The Forum at Landmark Worldwide. And nothing in my life I've ever done has been as valuable in every area of my life. My relationships with other people, my ability to motivate and keep myself focused, my overall satisfaction with life. I feel happier. I feel more productive. I don't just feel these things. I am. I'm happier. I'm more productive. I'm a better communicator. I'm more focused, as I mentioned a moment ago. I've never done anything that even compares. Now, it's not something that can be described in 12 minutes we have left. But this is the direction that I'm going to head down the road. Ten and a half, actually. But... Ten and a half minutes left? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So <laughs> one, of my, one of my coworkers at Legacy, Drew, he and I worked together when I owned my own mortgage company. He's the one that introduced me to Landmark, and he's also on this path of expanding, I don't know what you want to call it, human consciousness. How can we as humans just be more human? Now, you might say, well, I don't want to be more human. Humans are kind of crappy. But overall, the goodness in humans. Here's, here's, here's a tagline that, that, make, that motivates. It, it, I love this. At Landmark, the objective of that organization is to have a world that works for everyone, Eric, and no one is left behind. How do you do that? One person at a time. Help people figure out what really matters to them and what's been getting in the way continually. Let me ask you a question, Eric. Have you ever had a problem that you've worked on that just continues to persist and you keep looking at different angles, different techniques, different, and, and just think, why do I have that same problem that I had a year ago or three years ago? It just doesn't go away. Whether it's personal, relationship, some area of your life, just some, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody. Yeah, everybody does. does. Yeah. It's part of who we are, okay? I've never been in an organization or around an educational format that's so effective at helping you break through that stuff. It's just absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> it's cool. re really remarkable. Now, I've introduced some people to it. I have a friend that's taken it. He's the same way. He's just blown away by it. i got a friend in real estate who's about to take it, too. And um, I'm committed to this organization because of all the good it's so. Now, here's some of the things it's not. It's not a belief system. In fact, they encourage you to question everything all the time. It's an inquiry into the human condition. Why do we do the things we do? Do we have all the answers? We don't have any answers. All we know is we have tools and techniques that seem to work very effectively, but we question them all the time. If they don't work, we'll change them. Fantastic that way. It's not, it's not personality-driven. There's, no, so, there's no leader that we all follow. In fact, the person who started it back in the early 70s pretty much does. He always said, I don't want, any, I don't want anybody to follow. You ever heard the old adage, if you, if you encounter the Buddha on the road, what are you supposed to do? I, I've never heard this, so I yeah, don't know. Yeah, if you encounter Buddha on the road, what do yeah. you do? Well, give him a lift. Kill him. 
What? <laughs> Look it up. Okay. The whole idea is to not follow somebody else, not to take somebody else's answers. Find the path yourself. Now, of course, sometimes we need coaching. And at Landmark, that's what we talk about, coaching. I have coaches there. I have multiple coaches. I'm learning how to coach. The whole idea is to have techniques and, 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 and uh, techniques is the best word for it, or technology that works, that helps people develop relationships with others that are important to them, to find the things that matter in their life. Everybody's things that matter are different. I don't know what matters to you, Eric. I, don't, I know you, but I don't know what really matters to you in life. And what matters to you is what, what I would be wanting to help in, you, know, you develop. Sure. Not something I think is important. Right. Who cares what I think? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I'm sure you do. <laughs> to some extent. Yeah. One of the things that we focus a lot on, Landmark, is, you know, there's that little voice in the back of your head all the time, right? Always going. It's always there. Never goes away. Got an inner monologue. Sure. Constantly. And so one of the things that we become aware of what the, what the inner monologue is saying and whether or not it's who you really want to be. Just being aware of it. And you know what? That takes a lot of practice because we get caught up. The inner monologue becomes our identity, and we don't even know that that's the case. It's one of, it's, it's one of dozens and dozens of different ways that we, that we look at things at Landmark. So Drew, who has gone down this path a little bit, but he's, he's involved in something different. He's been, he's been involved in this meditative approach to life that he primarily has gained from a person named Dr. Joe Dispenza. You ever heard of this, Dr. Joe Dispenza? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He's been on some of the programs here on the station. He has, okay. Mm-hmm. So Drew loves that approach to things, the meditative approach, which I have done some meditation. So we're going to get together and put together a show, and it's going to be designed to help anybody that wants to figure out ways to utilize techniques, tools, ideas that both of us have been gathering over the years to more effectively manage their own lives in whatever way that matters to them. And we're going to be probably incorporating some of our real estate and mortgage business into that. In fact, um, Drew is the head of, uh, at Legacy Group Capital, There's we have a division called Legacy University. And it's Drew's job to develop that, and he's well along the way. It's, it's, it's the, the, the course content has actually been around for a long time. CEO Scott Rarucka put it together. And that course is specifically designed to help people in the mortgage and real estate industry develop themselves so they can be more effective in their co- chosen careers. Because what most, most people find is that they can be knowledgeable, know everything about real estate, know everything about whatever trade or profession they're in, but, but they're not as successful as they want to be, whatever success means to them, because they're in their own way all the time. So this course that Scott and then Drew is, Scott's first developed and Drew is, is working on will incorporate a lot of these ideas about, from Drew Espenza and some of the things from Landmark on, on how a person can get out of their own way, be more effective as a human being, to be, well, more human on the ideal side of being a human. <laughs> so, some people can interpret being human is not such a wonderful thing. I happen to think being human is pretty cool. So um, I'll share you with I'll share you one of my own personal experiences through Landmark. I uh, I suffered for most of my life since my early twenties, and I'm 62 now, from severe chronic fatigue syndrome to the point where I just couldn't function sometimes for, oh, just I couldn't function. And when I took the Landmark Forum in um, October, I wrote down on there's an intake form. What do you want to get out of it? And I said, one of the things I'd like to get out of it is get rid of my chronic fatigue syndrome. And the forum leader, she comes in and does the work. She, she reviews all these, and then she tells 
She told the person to call me and say, Greg, don't have expectations that that'll happen. We are not a medical facility. We're not a therapy. That's something we do. Well, believe it or not, it's gone. It's, I don't, I, this is so weird. People ask me, how's your chronic fatigue? And I say now, it's not an issue anymore. Now, did it go away? I don't know. All I know is it doesn't interfere with my life anymore. To be fair, though, about the same time, a couple months before that, I started using a CPAP machine at night, which forces air because I had slight sleep apnea. So those things are co- they, they, they go side by side. But here's the interesting thing about it, Eric. The chronic fatigue syndrome was so much a part of my identity that I would I finally recognized that I was using it as a way to cop out on not doing things that were difficult. But it took me to go through these courses to really see that. Mm-hmm. And I had other people tell me, oh, it's psychosomatic. But that made no sense to me because I was tired. But I really got to the point where I got it. Not just understood it, but I really just intrinsically got it. Just It resonated in me that this is, this is not going to rule me anymore. So do I still have chronic fatigue syndrome? It doesn't matter. All I know is I function at a much higher level than I did before. I have much more vibrancy and enthusiasm for life on a regular basis. That's it's great. A, it's a direct result of this because that, that, that chronic fatigue syndrome was so, it's so inhibiting with me in my life that it basically kept me from doing almost anything I want to do. I avoided commitments because of it because I thought I'd check out. I, so I stayed self-employed by, on purpose. I didn't want to be part of an organization that, it, that, that needed me to be reliable because I had to be there on time. Now, I, I worked on my own so I could work my own hours so I could adapt to when I felt waves of fatigue and that was so limiting because it's hard to work on your own all the time you know groups of people are more effective at accomplishing great things than just individuals you've looked that's just life right partnerships groups so anyways that's just a little bit about what i experienced if anybody out there has chronic fatigue syndrome and you've suffered with it for years feel free to give me a buzz i got millions of different ideas and i'm more happy to share them with you and this particular how important this was to me it really, really changed how I, how I live my everyday life. And um, I couldn't, if that was the only thing, Eric, that I got out of the legacy, I mean the legacy, well, the landmark, it would be worth every, every hour, every dollar I put into it. Nothing can compare to that. It's like I'm free, free. Yeah, that sounds like a huge weight lifted oh, off your shoulders. Sure. That's fantastic. Uh, and I find myself more just just in general just more relaxed about everything it's fantastic just things just don't bug me like they used to that was a particular i didn't even know that i that i had that to be let go of but i just how much time we got right now we got about one minute okay so wrapping up next week i'm gonna have one last show hope you listen i'll be just I don't know the topic yet. I'll come up with something between now and then. It'll be about homes, but it'll probably be more, a little bit more detail about some of the things I'm thinking about doing in the show in the future. I really appreciate my listening audience over the last year. Looking forward to coming back with a different format here in a couple months. This is Greg McKim with Home Talk. You can reach me on my cell, 206-250-6545. Have a blessed day. 